both please pronounce your names correctly for me. I'm Amelia Brankoff. And I'm Joe Patella. And you two are both high power arts lawyers in New York City. I'm so excited to have not just one, but two high powered lawyers. It's so much fun. So do you have any sort of backgrounds that you want to sort of tell us about so that we have some sort of uh, insight into sort of who you are and your expertise before we get into any of this? So go ahead, Amelia, why don't you start? I'm the founder of Brankoff PLLC. I have my own law firm in the city, and I represent artists, collectors, galleries in all kinds of disputes and legal questions that arise in connection with creating and selling artwork. Quick question. PLLC, what does that mean? (laughs) Well, it's a PLLC, which is a, a professional limited liability company. So lawyers are licensed. So we have to add that annoying P at the beginning. (laughs) <laughs> of LLC. <laughs> that is what was throwing me off. I know an LLC, but I didn't know a PLLC. There you go. <laughs> All right. Joseph? Is it Joe or Joseph? Joe is fine. Okay, Joe. Okay, sorry. So I am a litigation partner at Hunt and Andrews Kurth. I've been practicing law now for 25 years, so this is my silver anniversary. I handle all types of complex commercial disputes, including those involving fine art and cultural property. I have been representing Christie's now for over 12 years. And the types of disputes that I handle include issues of authenticity, for example, the sale of a fake or a forgery, questions of title and ownership, including Holocaust restitution cases, and legal issues involving antiquities. And for that, I've actually been representing the National Gallery of Australia since 2014. So it's been a nice twist on my general practice of commercial litigation. And thankfully, you know, something that I've been able to maintain as part of my general practice. Now, just a quick thing. How do you all know each other? Well, the art law community is a small one. We all know each other and and we have to stay friends because we often find ourselves fighting against each other in litigation. Although that hasn't happened yet with Amelia and I, but we're both members of the New York City Bar Art Law Committee. Uh, I think we even spoke on a panel once before. That's right. Uh, Paths have interacted on a number of uh, occasions. Lovely. All right. So we want to start off today talking about the, let's see, Andy Warhol versus Goldsmith. Is that the correct phrasing for the the litigation? You've got it perfectly right. That's right. Okay. I did some research, I promise. So... (laughs) So the first question, so I mean, from what I understand about it was Goldsmith's photograph was used by Andy Warhol to create a whole series of images about prints or of prints that he then sold as artwork, which Goldsmith had never given the rights for him to do that. And so that's where it sort of all started from. So give me maybe a little bit more of a legal background and sort of what this has now come to at this point. And by the way, I'll, I'll ask the same question. Is it Matt or Matthew? <laughs> I don't care. Just call me something nice. <laughs> I, I see Matt on the screen, so I'll use that. But I think, you know, one of the things you said actually kind of really goes to, to the heart of the case. What Goldsmith agreed to at the very outset was to have her photo licensed for use as an artist reference to Vanity Fair. So the idea was that her picture would then be taken by an artist, created as an illustration and used for that particular issue. That's all she agreed to. She actually had no idea that Warhol would go on and use the photo to create an entire series of works until 2016 when Prince died, Vanity Fair came back and they wanted to have a commemorative edition on the artist. So they 
licensed another photo from the Warhol series of 15 to serve as, as its cover. And it was then and only then that Goldsmith became aware that Warhol had created this entire series of works. Right. So then she made a claim against the Warhol Foundation, which controls all of the intellectual property rights of Andy Warhol after he died, which is a non-for-profit entity that uses licensing money to serve for charitable purposes. And Ms. Goldsmith said, hey, wait, you know, I didn't approve that licensing use. I license my own photographs. This is copyright infringement. And the Warhol Foundation is actually the plaintiff in the case because it went to court saying, I want a judgment from the court saying that what Andy Warhol did and what the foundation did is not copyright infringement for two reasons. The first reason is the works are not substantially similar as a matter of law. There's not enough copying there. It's, it's not illegal copying. And the second reason was it doesn't matter whether it's copying because it's fair use. We're entitled to do it without the photographer's permission because it's for a different, distinct purpose. I'm a photographer, so I beg to differ <laughs> right off the bat about the term fair use. So, I mean, I've done it. Don't get me wrong. Like, even in my own artistic practice, I have appropriated other people's images and utilized them in my own works, but I didn't, I'm not Andy Warhol and I'm not using it in Vanity Fair. So, the, I think a lot of the difference is this simply the sheer, sheer amount of money that was involved in all of those things that really pushed this forward. Well, I think what push this forward was not the use of the photograph in the artwork. It was the licensing use, you know, the use of the artwork on the cover of the magazine. Miss Goldsmith is saying, well, my photograph could have served the same purpose, you know, and that's where the crux of the problem arose. But I think that Matt, you'll like the rest of the story. So Joe can continue on and, and tell you more of the saga. Do tell, yes. So the first round, the district court made a ruling of fair use, that Warhol's illustration was its own separate work of art. And the court found it to be what's known as transformative, which is one of the factors in determining fair use. What does that mean? It means that he added something new to the original, gave it a new expression, meaning, or message. The decision was issued by Judge Codal, who I happen to think is a very smart man. I, I had my very first case for Christie's in front of Judge Cotto, and we won that. So I have great respect for him. And he's definitely someone who is known for being very solid on the law. And Judge Cotto relied heavily on a prior case where there was a finding of fair use, the, the case of Cariou versus Prince, a case that many people in the art world are familiar with, where the appropriation artist Richard Prince made fair use of a number of photographs taken by Patrick Cariou. I see you're shaking your head there, Matt. <laughs> I have a love-hate relationship with Mr. Prince, yes. I, I would imagine a number of photographers do. So what Prince did here was that he incorporated Cariou's photographs into a series of paintings and collages. And the court found that what he did was transformative. At least he did a, an entire series of works, and specifically they found that 25 out of the 30 were transformative, that, that he took... Cariou's initial photographs of Rastafarians and which conveyed more of a serene composed setting and by his imposition of color and distorted human forms made something that was more crude and jarring and created a completely different aesthetic. 
So relying on that prior decision and how the court defined what's transformative, Judge Kodal found that what Andy Warhol did here was a fair use, and therefore there was no copyright infringement. That held up until just this year, and I'll let Amelia take the next step. So Ms. Goldsmith appealed, and the Second Circuit in New York, a panel of three federal appellate judges, overturned Judge Kodal's ruling, which I'm sure Judge Kodal just thought he was following the law that the Second Circuit, the appellate court, had created in that Richard Prince case from a few years back. And the court said, well, we're not, you know, we're not overturning that decision in the Richard Prince case, but the decision below causes us to think that some clarification of our prior ruling is in order. And what we held in the Cariou case was really the high watermark of fair use. And here, we're looking at the Goldsmith photo and the Warhol work, and the Warhol work is not transformative because they both function as a depiction of what the recording artist Prince looks like. That's pretty shocking, at least it was to me, because, you know, in advising a number of people on both sides of the fence in terms of bringing a copyright infringement claim or defending against one, a lot of attorneys thought that Andy Warhol's work was sort of a paradigm example of what was transformative. You know, whatever he's doing, that's transformative. Certainly from a cultural perspective, I'm not sure that anyone would disagree that his work is not transformative. It's iconic. You know, but that is not the test in the copyright law. And I think that that, while some people think that there may be a psychic harm in the court saying, you know, Andy Warhol's work is not transformative, it's a really a different test and a different analysis that the court is undergoing and making this analysis. Yeah, I think the the court really tried to do the impossible here. They tried to create an objective approach to something that's just inherently subjective, which is interpreting art. They went back to the lower court's decision, and they took issue with the fact that the court found what Warhol did was he transformed Goldsmith's original depiction of a vulnerable artist and made him something larger than life. That was the transformation. And indeed, Goldsmith says that back in 1981, when she took the photograph, that was her intention, to capture this vulnerability of someone who, at least at that stage, was still trying to make his way into the art world. However, when I look at Goldsmith's photo, I don't necessarily see vulnerability. I think of the Jones Beach concert that I went to, where Prince you know, approached the stage out of nowhere from a boat and dazzled us for a few hours. And I imagine I'm not alone. And indeed, Goldsmith said, And the court was very persuaded by the fact that she said, look, audiences viewing my photo today might see him in a different light than I saw him in 1981. So this idea of transforming from vulnerable to larger than life is highly subjective. And I think the court wanted to try and get away from that and to do something that's more objective. You know, we we look to court decisions to give us guidance on a going forward basis to set a standard. But you could make the argument, and I know a lot of people have, they went too far. They then completely went the other way and fixated more on just the visual. You know, whether 
it retains the essential elements of the original work? Is it recognizable to the original work? And if it is, it's not transformative. And, and that's a problem. You know, we know and we've seen how things can be replicated almost to, to be exactly like the initial image and yet convey a different meaning. Warhol's the perfect example with his Campbell Soup Can art and the message that that conveys about American consumerism you know, versus the original photo of just what's inside the can and how yummy it is. So it's dangerous what the court did here in its attempt to be more objective because in many ways it really kind of narrowed the idea of what's transformative and has put a lot of appropriation artists in great concern that what they might be doing could be considered infringing. I think the other part of a fair use analysis that's really important, I think, is enhanced by this decision is what we know as copyright lawyers as the fourth factor, which is looking at the market harm of the plaintiff, the photographer who bought the case, and whether the use by the defendant, in this case, Andy Warhol's art, usurped the market for the photographer in some respect. And I think in this instance, when the artwork functions in a licensing capacity on the cover of a magazine, I think that's certainly a different usage than the artwork. And maybe we can all say that, you know, we certainly care a lot about artwork being in cultural institutions, being, you know, able to be displayed and sold. Do we really have the same vested interest in? an artwork which incorporates third-party material being able to be licensed for a profit without giving any cut to the underlying photographer. And I think that, that there's some sympathy in that argument. I do question whether we needed to have such a grave second look at this transformative test in order to, to reach that result in this decision. But I think, you know, Joe touched on something else which I think is really interesting and the, the case is still in a way ongoing because an interesting development happened right after the Second Circuit came down with its decision and that's that the Supreme Court of the United States issued a ruling in this a Google Oracle dispute and in that case there was an exact copying of the plaintiff's product by the defendant and the court said, well, it's to create a new alternative and creative product. And so therefore, it's transformative. And in the decision, there was a reference without name to the artist of exactly what Joe was mentioning before, essentially like the Campbell soup can example, because they said, well, an artist could use the exact expression and have it be transformative. Like when you use an advertising logo, as a comment on consumerism. So the Warhol Foundation, you know, reads this decision and says, hey, Second Circuit, you should take a second look at this case because it's inconsistent with the Supreme Court, <laughs> which is, you know, you're bound by the law of that court because it's, you know, the Supreme Court of the of the country, obviously. In many ways, the Google case is an easier case for a lot of people because as Amelia said, it was clearly done for a distinct purpose, Google's copying of Oracle's code. 
as I understand it, it was to build a new operating system for cell phones versus the original Java code, which was more for desktop applications. So you clearly had a distinct purpose here. One could argue that there is a way to reconcile the Google case with the Warhol decision because the court there found that the, the purpose for the Warhol illustration was exactly the same as Goldsmith's photo, which was simply a portrait of a rock star. And I think what's interesting is that in many ways, the Warhol case is very limited. You know, we talked earlier, Matt, at the start about how Warhol made this entire series of works basing it on the photograph. These other items in the series are in the hands of museums and collectors. But the court went out of its way to say that they're not deciding on those works as to whether they infringe or not. They're talking specifically about the use of the one work in the series that was licensed to Vanity Fair for use in the commemorative issue. And when you look at that purpose and that specific use, it's exactly what Goldsmith did back in 1984, licensing a photograph, a depiction of an artist for use in a popular magazine to accompany an article. And that's where I think the court was more persuasive in talking about the market effect, as Amelia mentioned, whether this second use usurps the market for the first. Everyone completely agrees, and, and the parties actually concede, that the primary market for Goldsmith and for Warhol, they're very different markets in terms of who they seek to get the attention. But in this particular instance, the use was the same. And for that reason, the court felt that this is not a situation where Warhol can claim this as his own without Goldsmith's consent. And in many ways, you could think of this case less about fair use and more of just a licensing issue. You know, what specifically did Goldsmith agree upon and did Warhol maybe take it a step too far? Okay, my first questions. I have a list of questions. You all just like brought up so many topics, but we'll start. Keep it simple. The so first of all, is this case done? Have both parties just agreed? Okay, we're not going to even push it farther forward because they're only at the federal level. They could theoretically go to the Supreme Court. So, is this case resolved? Not even close. And you know, lawyers will continue to fight if there's every last breath available. So the case was decided <laughs> by. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yes, how, that's what we, we do. <laughs> exactly, but obviously for good reason, of course. No, the the decision by the Second Circuit was by a panel of three judges, not the entire court. So now there has been a petition for rehearing by that panel or by the entirety of the Second Circuit. So that's the next step right now. And as Amelia pointed out, the Warhol Foundation already filed their request for rehearing. When the Supreme Court decision came out, the court requested that the Goldsmith side make any kind of submission they want as to what effect their decision would have based on this new Supreme Court ruling. And I don't think Goldsmith has filed that yet. But essentially, yes, their, their parties are in the process of seeking a rehearing to have this issue reexamined. Okay. My next thing was though, that I know I did not see in any of my research about like how much money are we actually talking about or like, or what, what's at stake? I guess this is a two-part question. What's at stake in this particular case and what's at stake for the larger art industry, depending on the outcome of this case? Well, I actually don't know the amount of money that's at stake in the case. For the Warhol Foundation, it was just seeking a ruling that it wasn't infringing. 
and Goldsmith countersued for copyright infringement. But, you know, even though I don't know the exact amount of money that's available in this case, I can tell you that damages and copyright infringement cases can be shockingly high. So if a photographer registers their copyright before the infringement, they have the option to elect for statutory damages plus attorney's fees, or you can get actual damages plus profits. And statutory damages for just one work can be up to $150,000 if it's willful. Actual damages here, you know, I'm not sure what, what that would amount to, but, you know, just the possibility of having to pay legal fees for your own attorney, possibly paying the loser's fees and then damages is so much that a lot of times these copyright infringement cases don't really get to court or don't get very far because it's just so expensive to proceed with them. So here the original licensing fee by Condé Nast, which I believe owns the publication, was $10,000 licensing fee was the original fee they paid to the Warhol Foundation. But that's all I can find on it. Mm-hmm. But what's the issue, like, what's the concern that uh, the arts industry should have over the outcome of this? Either, with, no matter which way it goes, I have a, the feeling that there's going to be some sort of ramifications for us all to be concerned. One of the, the reasons this, this recent decision created an uproar was the concern that the finding of no fair use would have a chilling effect on artists, particularly appropriation artists that what they do in incorporating source material and trying to create a new expression may now be found by the court to not be enough and potentially infringing on someone's copyright. You could argue, though, that a finding of no infringement here could have a reverse effect, that it could actually be a chilling effect on creators of original works of art. You know, we have the copyright protections as an incentive for people to create. And this decision, if it went the other way, or if it does go the other way, some could say would be create less of an incentive for those people who like to create something completely new. You know, I imagine this is a case about photographers and you happen to be one, Matt. And I know that before you even snap that picture, a ton of choices are made, right? In terms of angle and pose and lighting, and even the choice of film and choice of camera. And one could say that a decision like this by the second court helps to protect those choices. So again, lawyers argue both sides of things. I do know that you know the, the immediate reaction was the decision, if it does not change, would create a, a chilling effect you know, on artists like Warhol, maybe lesser known artists, who try to appropriate something that previously existed and create something new. Okay, but the thing that pops in my head, first of all, is that you're using the term appropriation artists. Is this a broad terminology that's used? Because I'm thinking musicians who sample and things like this. So is, is this just an issue of visual arts or is this an issue throughout all different creative methodologies? In this context, we're obviously speaking, you know, in terms of visual art, but I think it certainly goes beyond all types of me- methodologies. That's right, because the transformative test and the fair use test applies across the board. It's to all different types of property, and that's why we can make an argument 
based on software code in the Google case and apply it to an art case. Okay. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that because to me, when I, if I were, if you, well, like you just did to tell me about these two completely different cases, one is an artistic expression. The other is two corporations bickering over some basically computer code or mathematical algorithms or whatever. I don't see that they're comparable. So like, how are those two things even comparable to one another legally? In both instances, you have the legal claim of a copyright infringement. So you need to assess what is the legal standard for determining whether there has been an infringement or what are the defenses to an infringement, which is fair use. So that, that defense crosses all boundaries in terms of the underlying dispute, whether it be a work of art or whether it be computer code. Again, with respect to court decisions, we want to try and get some kind of consistency, some type of guidance on how we are to conduct ourselves. So in the area of copyrights, and I, I defer more to Amelia because I don't do as much IP work as she does, the whole point here as to why we can talk about these two cases is because the underlying claim is the same and the available defenses are the same. That's exactly right. We'll have to see whether this decision gets changed in that, you know, coming months or whether it stands. And then we'll have to see whether there's enough in this decision to be able to make the arguments that we want to make on both sides. I mean, I represent people who want to bring these type of claims. I represent people who defend these types of claims. So I'm looking at it both sides. And and we do need law that us as attorneys can understand and be able to guide clients on and that hopefully the clients will be able to understand as well. So we'll have to see how things go and and whether photographers and other claimants are emboldened by this decision and are taking more aggressive stances or whether it's more of the same. And I think for me, one of the things that I think is kind of a silver lining of this decision is that the Google decision in talking about this veiled reference to a Campbell soup can work. And I even think the second circuit decision is leaving open or is saying that there's a chance that an artwork that uses exact expression can be fair use. And I think that's important because I really do think that, that artwork that copies can have a completely different meaning or message. I mean, I think about Richard Prince and, you know, when I went to his Guggenheim retrospective, seeing Spiritual America, which is just an exact copy of an adolescent Brooke Shields. I mean, I think that's transformative. I think that's fair use. And you think about other cases like the Shepherd Fairy case. I don't know if you remember, you guys remember that case, but so Shepherd Fairy used a Barack Obama AP photo right and colored it and put hope underneath it so it was the hope poster for then senator barack obama's like presidential campaign and so that was a lawsuit that never got decided but a lot of us thought that that was a fair use you know and now we're looking at this decision in light of what the second circuit said and said well, what what would the second circuit say now about that all right, I need some definitions from your standpoint on this. So fair <laughs> use, 
uh, the, the word fair use, like I understand what the word fair means. I understand what the word use means, but I'm not sure what they mean when put together legally, because I, it's probably, I, I'm probably very loosey goosey. I'm not a lawyer. So like, to me, it's like, Ooh, fair use, but I'm sure there's some, I mean, are there some very specific criteria or is it just subjective up to the jury or the judge? Well, it's decided on a case-by-case -case basis. So there's copyright infringement. And so to have copyright infringement, you have to have substantial similarity between two underlying works. They don't have to be exact copies, but they have to be substantially similar. And fair use is a complete defense to copyright infringement. So you don't have to ask the underlying rights holder for permission. You can just do it anyways if what you're doing is fair use. And so there, it's a multi-factor test under the law, and there are four factors that courts tend to consider. And the first factor is the purpose and character of the use. Then you look at the amount that you took and balancing it against you know, the amount that's left behind. And I, I think I may be forgetting a factor, <laughs> but also you look at the market harm to the plaintiff in the case. And you balance these and the courts generally tend to say that the first and the fourth factor, the purpose and character, which has been determined to be this transformative test and the market harm are the most important. You know, the other, the other factor, I'm sorry, is the nature of the work. Yeah, yes. Whether something is either considered creative versus factual or whether something has been published or not published. So the idea being that if it's more factual, it would lean toward the area of fair use because you're essentially taking general facts. And if it's been published versus not, if it's been published, it, it would tend to lean more toward the side of fair use. So yeah, I mean, fair use is a term of art that is made up of each of these factors. And the court sort of walks through each factor when it makes its decision. But as Amelia mentioned, the emphasis seems to be on the first and the fourth. And what's interesting about the Warhol case is, is the court, the judge specifically, Judge Sullivan, in his concurring opinion, came out and said, we're spending too much time on, on tra the transformative element. And there might be an over-reliance on that. And it has a series of pitfalls, right? We're trying to find a way to make this determination of whether there's been a new meaning or message. So they think there should be, or they, they say that they, they, they appreciate the renewed focus on the fourth factor, which is the effect on the market, as that might be something that's a little bit easier to determine. All right. But the thing that pops in my head is why, okay, I understand from a legal standpoint why Goldsmith's attorney said, oh, the easiest one to go after is the image that was used on the Vanity Fair cover. It was Vanity Fair, right? Yes. Okay. I'm just, I'm just making sure I don't, I don't want to slander some other <laughs> publication if it wasn't Vanity Fair. Okay. Vanity Fair. So, but why is, why did Goldsmith not go after all the other editions of, of paintings that Andy Warhol did using her photograph? Possibly because Goldsmith had a very smart lawyer and understood that the, you know, the, this issue, this market effect, the other works are in the hands of museums and collectors. And that's not an area that, you know, Goldsmith gets involved in with, with her photographs versus magazines. So as the court said, this opinion was, was specifically limited to Goldsmith's request for damages and royalties for any licensed reproductions 
of the print series. And that was the one instance that it, it occurred. Right. But in my mind, but like, okay, but Andy Warhol and, you know, as much as I admire Andy Warhol, so I'm, but I'm still going to badmouth him a little bit on this, is he stole somebody's photograph and then silk screened it and then called it art. And he threw a couple pieces of paint on it and some color. Okay, fine. But it still was, he used somebody else's image without their permission, called it his own and sold it for millions of dollars. Nothing's inappropriate or illegal there. I mean, you said you steal, but that's an assumption. You can take it if it's fair use. It doesn't matter that you asked or you didn't ask. And there are so many instances under the, you know, under the law and history where people borrow and they take and they make something new. And that's perfectly fine. I'm very confused on that because I don't, I, basically, I don't understand what constitutes the ability to just take some, I mean, so like, so if I hacked into somebody else's computer and got their photos, or let's say, no, here, I'll give you a perfect example of what people can do because Richard Prince did this. So like I go to Instagram and I find some photos and I think they're lovely. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I should paint those exact same photographs and then I'll sell them as paintings. That's okay. Even though they're exact copies of it. I mean, it's really a case by case analysis and you have to look at whether there's a new meaning or message. I mean, going back, we have Jeff Koons is another artist who has been sued a number of times. And, you know, maybe you remember the string of puppies case from a long time ago, but there was a greeting card where this couple was have had like seven or eight puppies in their arms, like a string of puppies in this greeting card. And Jeff Koons sees that and creates a sculpture of the greeting card, the, the string of puppies. So it's a different medium, same expression, but different media. And the question was whether that was a fair use. And in that decision, the court said, no, this was a long time ago. And some would argue that the law has changed in the interim. In that case, it was held to be no, but you know, I think in other instances, it could be fair use. The law wants to protect people who have something new to say. And in some ways, and, and, and this is even true in, in the Warhol case, you could make the argument that the, the recent decision and the finding of no fair use is an attack on the First Amendment. Indeed, you know, there's a, been an amicus brief that's submitted in the case making that exact argument. So there is a desire, of course, to want to encourage and protect new expression. And that's why what Amelia said is true. You have to examine it on a case-by-case -case basis. Is it just flat-out copying with no artistic addition involved, no new message, or is there a new message trying to be conveyed here? But, of course, the hard part then is, is making that determination, and that's certainly what the Warhol Court is struggling with now, which is what is the barometer to determine if there is a new meaning or expression being made here. Okay, but you just brought up a topic that, said, that basically said that the law is changing. So does this, like, so currently there is this fair use, transformative, these four criteria. Is there a time when those didn't exist? And is there a time in the future when those might change? Well, the factors remain the same, but the court's analysis of the factors and the weight of each factor has changed over time and even differs in different parts of the country. Different federal courts have taken different positions about how one ought to determine 
these cases. So there's no consistency across, e- I mean, because of course I live in Europe, so like I'm looking at Europe versus America versus Africa and Asia and all this, but you're saying we, even within America, there's no real consistency on the way that this is decided. Well, there's, I mean, it's the same law. It's just different judges making decisions in specific cases again, on a case-by-case basis. So we don't have a system where a case can be pending in two different places at the same time. So we can't really say, well, that's the exact same fact pattern or exact same case decided differently. Yeah, the goal, of course, is to get that consistency. But you do have different circuit courts throughout the country that may have a different take on applying the, the very same law that's involved here. And that's when you know, you may need to get up to the Supreme Court, which would then be binding on all of the circuit courts below. But yes, I mean, this is, again, why we have lawyers, right? Because we have to deal with situations where you have binding precedent, but other instances where we have what's called persuasive authority, where there is a case in another jurisdiction, similar set of facts, not binding on this particular case, but because it's so similar, could have a persuasive effect on the outcome. Okay, my head is starting to hurt a little bit on this. <laughs> this is what happens when you invite two lawyers. Right. Matt. Welcome to our <laughs> world. <laughs> is it as confusing for each of you talking to each other about these kinds of things? Because, I mean, I want you know, like I'm a very rational person, and so like I want an Excel spreadsheet or a set of information that sort of says step by step, do this, do this, do this. You were not breaking a law, or do this, do this, do this. You are breaking a law. Done. But this seems so nebulous. And so subjective at this point. It's the gray areas that that make practicing law fascinating, at least for me, right? I mean, if we if the answer was so clear cut at the outset, you wouldn't have the the battles and wars that Amelia have fought, that we've fought and, and will fight on a going forward basis. Things just aren't clear cut. Look, there are circumstances where you do have a clear answer under the law, and the parties know at the outset who's right and who's wrong. But oftentimes that's not the case, or oftentimes you can make a creative argument to say otherwise. And that's where, you know, we try and find the right answer based on, you know, what the law says and how the courts interpret it. This is one of the grayer areas of the law, though. And so when you're advising on the front end, giving counseling, as opposed to after a dispute has already arisen, it can be frustrating because you're not able to give your client 100% clear guidance in this area because it is a gray area as joe said it's it's not like there are you know clear black lines as to whether you know if you go forward one more step that's illegal but you know what you're doing right now is perfectly fine well see and you all as lawyers you're like oh that's the most fun part of this okay us as artistic practitioners no that is not the most fun that's the most that's the that's the worst part of it like we want to be able to say This is why it's illegal, done, or like you infringed on my copyright because of this, period. And we, we, as practitioners, want it to be clear cut, but you all seem to enjoy the gray areas. So, you know, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are so many traps for the unwary, you know, people who think that they're following the law later find out that they're not, you know. One example I have is a, an artist client who saw a work on Google Images and copied it and used it in an artwork and thought that because it was 
available online. It was free for the taking. And, you know, that's just not the case, unfortunately. So that person found out the hard way. I'm personally struggling with the def- just the straight up definition. So the words fair use and transformative. Fair use to me, like, okay, so let, let's take Warhol versus Goldsmith and, as, as our example, because this is, of course, where we started. To me, under the term fair use, the image that Goldsmith had created was not in the public domain anywhere. It was an unpublished photo that Andy Warhol somehow got a hold of and then decided to create these screen prints of, which then he turned around and licensed to this Condé Nast publication. None of that sounds like fair use to me. I mean, everything in there is copyrighted because that photograph was copyrighted at creation. So they they didn't need to file anything. They didn't have to have it published, anything like that. So it was already copyrighted to Goldsmith. But yet Andy Warhol took it without permission and made a piece of art, which he then sold for millions of dollars and, of course, then licensed to Condé Nast. None of that sounds like fair use to me as, as from the side of being a practitioner. Yeah, well, you have to remember that the copyright law is a balancing act. So it's got to give an incentive to authors to create works. But copyright lasts a long time. It's the life of the author plus 70 years. That's a long time to have, you know, a monopoly on rights. And you have to balance that against the rights of others to come and use copyrighted material to create new material with different meaning and message. Other artists benefit from that and the public benefits from that. Well, I mean, I think back to like the the Maryland, the, like the gold Marylands, and of course all the Marylands that he created. He didn't pay, I forget what the photographer, I forget the photographer's name, but the photographer who took the picture of Maryland didn't get a payment to, for Andy from Andy Warhol when he sold those pieces for millions of dollars using the photograph that this photographer took. To me, as a photographer, horribly inappropriate. I think the best way to think of fair use is that it, it is a legal defense. So yes, there's no dispute that it's a copyrighted work that is entitled to full protection under the law. The law also creates defenses to combat certain claims, just like you have the defense of a statute of limitations. Someone might have a very legitimate case to pursue, but they may have waited too long to file it. And even though there's merit there, you have the legal defense of saying it's barred by the statute of limitations, therefore you have no claim. Here, Goldsmith had copyright protection in her photograph, but the law created another defense of fair use to say, yes, even though you have a viable claim of copyright, we are creating this area of the law to allow for further expression of ideas. All right. But then within that, the the nature, okay, the thing that concerns me about it is the photograph that Goldsmith took, which Andy Warhol then transformed, there is no quantifiable way to describe or, or, or delineate the amount of transformation that's necessary because like Richard Richard Prince changing it from a photograph to a painting somehow became somehow transformative enough, even though it was literally a direct copy of it. But that's not enough. Like, I mean, because I know a lot of painters who actually will paint portraits from a photograph. So that's just like, that's just being a painter. 
that's not transformative. So like, what is the quantifiable definition that says transformative enough? That's really the magic question. That's what the court has been wrestling with through these two rounds of decisions is, is can we come up with a standard that appropriately defines this? You know, the, the, the general idea initially going back to Carrie versus Prince is it just, does it add something new? Does it create a new meaning message or expression? This court wanted to pair that back a little bit and say it needed to do more than that. It needed to have a fundamentally different purpose or character. And that if you're retaining the essential elements of the work, or if it's still recognizably derived from the original work, it's not transformative. And that that is, you know, creating a great deal of concern because as you pointed out, Matt, and as we've talked about, we don't think that an artist needs to do that much to create a new idea or a new message. But the court is now trying to to establish a standard where you need to do a lot to change the original source material for it to be transformative. Okay, I was just listening to somebody else before this recording talk about just the same thing. What about filters on your phone? So like if I found a photograph that I thought was really beautiful and I put it on my at the by somebody else and I put it on my phone and I put it through a filter is that transformative enough? Well, are you then going to attempt to profit from it? Of course. Okay. As I say, at the end of the day, it's not an issue unless someone is, unless money is involved, right? Well, I mean, and that's the interesting thing about it because like I know lots of artists that do create, do a lot of appropriation work. They do a lot of engaging, you know, like you talked about, like transforming, uh, like the Nike swoosh into some sort of statement about consumerism, that kind of stuff. And they can get away with it because there's not a profit being made from it. Like, does, is that legally a difference? Like, so let's say I'm an artist and I'm going to, let's say I'm an artist. Okay. I'm an artist and I make a piece. Let's take the Nike swoosh and let's say I paint the Nike swoosh onto a painting and then I sell it. Am I in copyright infringement, but versus like, if I just exhibit it, but don't sell it. Well, you can be infringing without actually making any money. I mean, that I have brought infringement claims against artists who hadn't sold their work yet. They had just exhibited it. So <laughs> it's not that. Well, but would that be a cease and desist or would that be an actual like copyright infringement case? Ordinarily starts with a letter. But it could end up in court. But you know, in the in the instance that I'm describing, it wasn't a, a lawsuit. But yeah, that's not. It's not necessary that you make money off of it in in order for there to be have the ability to make a claim. But you know, the fact that you're making money off of it is going to incentivize the other party to to seek recompense for it but certainly if you're creating if you're creating any kind of harm you'd have a basis to bring suit and it may not necessarily it does, may not have to be reduced to money you know if you're confusing the public as to who really has ownership of a particular image or you know reputational harm things like that could be a basis to sue that you know don't necessarily involve dollars and cents Oh, reputational harm. I've heard about, there's a thing in Europe about that you can actually sue for reputation harm. Like that that's a thing here in the EU. I want to look more into that, but anyways. <laughs> All right, let's move on because we have another topic that we want to touch on, which is NFTs. 
I have my own opinion on them. I've expressed them in previous podcasts. I'll do it again, <laughs> which is basically, I believe they're based at this, at this, I should clarify too, at this moment, I feel like they sort of fall into a money laundering scam. It's it, it's basically, to me, it's some tech people that basically said, oh, we can make money off of artists. So let's do something technologically advanced that utilizes artists and takes money from them as well. So I'm I'm not a fan at the moment of them. But what are the legal issues that come around them? Because to me, it's just a huge can of worms. Yeah, one of the things that I find interesting is we're seeing a problem now with NFTs that we didn't expect that existed back, you know, with respect to traditional art sales. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I do a lot of work involving issues of authenticity, the sale of fakes and forgeries, once represented Christie's in a case where it was accused of fraud for selling a painting, a fake Basquiat that it, the plaintiff claims it knew to be false and sold anyway. We were able to, to win that case on Christie's behalf also represented a victim of the famous Nerdler Rosales scandal and who had bought what he thought was a Sam Francis painting only to find out years later it was a fake. You know, these are real issues that exist in the traditional art market. You would think that when we move over to NFTs, these problems of authenticity wouldn't exist because you have the added certainty of being on the blockchain, this public ledger of transactions where you have a file that's created that can't be deleted or edited and it's viewed publicly. So it's provenance, you know, can be verifiable. Yet we're seeing that there are these instances of uh, hacking and plagiarism that you wouldn't expect to exist here. For example, you know, not too long after probably the most famous NFT sale to date, the Christie sale of Beeple, the Beeple work for $69 million dollars, there was a hacking incident involving that very same work. There is an artist who operates under the pseudonym Monsieur Prosson, Mr. Nobody, who produced a supposed second edition of this Beeple work, and he registered the forgery on the blockchain as if Beeple himself minted the NFT. It's this concept known as sleep minting. So what happened here is the hacker is able to mint, that's the phrase that's used to register, create an NFT, and he was able to do this for and to the crypto wallet of an artist and then transfer the ownership back without the artist's consent or knowledge, hence the idea of sleepwalking. So it appears as a completely legitimate transaction on the blockchain as if the artist initiated it on his own. And the hacker, is funny, claims to actually be doing this for some good. Doesn't claim to be profiting off of it but is actually a huge supporter of NFTs. And what he wants to do is he wants to exploit the technological flaws that exist in the hopes that it, that it can be fixed. But the message here is that it shows a, a huge vulnerability in the NFT market and structural flaws that may exist in these smart contracts, which come with each NFT. So I found that pretty, pretty fascinating that an area where you would probably expect more certainty and less elements or less possibilities of fraud Right off the bat, we, we see that that this can exist. I think another interesting area of how NFTs impact the law and how we may learn something from NFTs is resale royalties. So the U.S. is different than a lot of other countries in that we don't have a resale royalty right to artists. 
California does have a statute on the books, but it was ruled to only apply to one year in the 70s. And various lawmakers have tried to get a federal resale royalty passed, but it's never met with any success. And so a number of artists and galleries have tried to implement a resale royalty by contract, either having an agreement with a purchaser that they would give you know, back a cut of any resale back to the artist or putting that in an invoice. But there are issues, of course, with enforceability of that and including with downstream purchasers. And so with the smart contract, what's attractive and interesting about that is that it can kick back to the artist a cut, you know, that the artist sets, you know, you see a lot of 10% going back automatically. Of course, I think we're already seeing the market that when you switch platforms, that may not, you know, happen automatically, but maybe that'll have a shift in the traditional market too. Yeah, the whole thing of the royalties, I have to admit, is probably one of the most attractive parts of doing NFTs because there's the sense as a creator of a thing so that like when I make my thing, I basically I don't just get income from sale number one, I potentially get income from sale number two and 2000. That's great. I love that. I wish, of course, as you said, more laws and more contracts would include things like that. But I don't how is that enforced? Because I, I've heard stories that like different platforms do it differently. And that indeed that actually that royalty agreement is not technically part of the blockchain itself. It's part of some side chain that is basically proprietary to each different, um, I don't even know what it's called. Miner. What is it? What is it that they make them mining, creating, minting? minting, minting. Thank you. Yeah. So each minter or, or website that you're selling it through the royalty thing is specific to that website, but not the blockchain proper. That's one of the, the problems that we face right now. This, this is evolving technology. So, so there are issues that are coming up for the first time and things that still need to be worked out, particularly the inconsistency with the platforms and marketplaces that exist. So you could have an NFT that you've purchased on a particular platform. If that platform goes out of business, what happens to, to your NFT? And this is an issue that needs to be examined and whether there's gonna be compatibility of moving it to a different platform. These are all unsettled areas. And particular to the issue of resale royalties, that's also a problem where if you then have this built-in idea of getting a royalty back for every resale, but then the work is moved to a different platform, that resale doesn't carry over. So there, it's very disjointed right now, and there needs to be efforts to try to create, you know, an approach that would be, you know, apply across the board here. But we haven't seen that yet. So th this, there's definitely a lot of issues in terms of getting this kind of consistency. Another thing you mentioned is that, you know, a link can break. And with fine art, physical fine art, you have fine art insurance that can cover a loss or damage, right? And so we got to think about what is the insurable product or how is a collector of NFTs going to be able, if at all, to insure these valuable things that they're purchasing? I have a super stupid question because I, okay, in my mind, I'm still kind of maybe old school technology wise, but like, okay, so I, if I buy an NFT, 
which I haven't yet. But like, if I were to purchase one, what do I uh, like? Do uh, do I get like a file on my computer, and then what should I put it on a thumb drive? And the, like, what do I do with it? It's just a file on a computer. But should I back it up? And are are those backups also like? What if I make like three backups? Are how? Are, they're no longer unique because I've made three backups. So like, is that, I don't get it. Yeah. This is where we give you the disclaimer that we're neither one of us are software engineers, but what, what I do know is that certainly if you have a digital wallet, that's where the transaction takes place. The token is token is then placed into your digital wallet and it's free to be sold or traded on these various platforms. As to whether any reproductions are allowed, I think that's going to have a lot to do with the terms of service of the particular platform that you're operating under. Well, but see, like, okay, my old school, again, really old school technological thing. So, like, I'm thinking if I buy an NFT, can I put it on a thumb drive? And then can I go to an art fair and sell that thumb drive as an NFT? And then somebody else puts it in their computer and they now have the NFT? Or is it only sort of cloud-based and web-based? Well, the NFT is just the pointer to the digital asset. And so you're just kind of buying bragging rights or the pointer, like the deed to the house. You know, you're not buying the artwork. That's the intellectual property rights of the creator. And you just get the rights to whatever the seller of the object is giving to you in connection with that NFT which typically is the right to just use it, you know, for non-commercial purposes. Well, that actually was about to be my question. Like, so like, what can I use it for? So I can display it on a screen in my home. I could, you know, use it as my background of my desktop, but like, I can't use it for advertising purposes or commercial purposes, I assume. No, no, you can't. And I mean, that's even with physical artwork, when you buy it, you're just buying the physical object you're not buying the copyright rights which are the rights to make other works based on it the right to reproduce images of it and disseminate those publicly that's that's not what you're getting when you buy an artwork and some with an nft it's the same set of rules that apply but I feel like like that's the next level. Like I want to be like, wouldn't some? I can imagine people wanting to license these NFTs to be able to make whatever products or T-shirts or umbrellas or you know, tote bags or whatever kind of thing. Like I would imagine there will be in the near future some element of not just being able to sort of purchase it on the blockchain, but be able to license these things as images in the real world. That'll come down to, to what the terms of use are and what, what the purchaser's rights will be. And, you know, that can obviously be negotiated. And, and certainly if it goes outside of the scope of the permitted uses, there's nothing to stop you from doing it. You could just then end up facing a lawsuit as a result of it. All right. So what are the legal concerns at this moment? We keep in mind it's an ever-evolving technology, but like right now, the two of you all have been, I'm sure, running into some of these issues. So what are some of the issues that you all have run into aside from my money laundering theme? <laughs> well, you know, we, we talked about this already, but, you know, what you're essentially getting when you buy the NFT is not the image itself. You're getting a unique digital identifier that then corresponds to an image which is hosted someplace else. So essentially, the artist of the image 
is free to create and sell an NFT of the very same work. So you may have the first one, but someone, the artist can go ahead and do the very same thing. Unless of course you can create some protection at the outset when you're, let's say, looking to consign an NFT to an auction house, the auction house is going to want to make sure that this doesn't happen in order to create appeal for the purchaser. And I, I believe actually Amelia's had some firsthand experience with that. Right. So, you know, when you're creating an NFT and and selling it through something like an auction house, they're going to want you as the creator to make certain promises to them and indemnify them and in case there's any problem, because you, after all, are in a better position to know, for example, whether this is actually your original product, whether you infringe somebody else's rights, you know, whether this is the product of a fraud, whether you've actually executed the NFT to make sure that it's going to function properly, et cetera. So those are things that auction houses and other sellers look to artists to have these sorts of promises with any kind of art property and you know also with nfts and the particular security and malware and other problems that can arise in connection with the sale of that type of property but from my perspective things have already come up on the kind of claim side you know, copyright infringement claim in connection with an NFT and also a right of publicity claim with an NFT. And I think that a lot of what, you know, the arguments are of attorneys are mapping on to what we would say in connection with any other type of artwork, you know, regardless of whether it's an NFT or not. But I think that there are interesting questions about how all of this is going to develop in the area of NFTs. Like, for example, a right of publicity law, which is a different right. You know, it would be the right of a Marilyn Monroe or a prince, the, you know, the people that we've been talking about to police the commercial use of their likeness and their name. And so how does that map on to the NFT world, where in some instances it can look like artwork, but in other instances it can look like a collectible? you know, like a product. So we'll have to see how those sorts of issues play out as more people are making and selling NFTs. Well, have either of you all had any cases of any sort, either defending or prosecuting as of yet? I haven't. Lawsuits? No, not yet. But do you expect to in the near future? <laughs> Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. You know, some have said that this is just going to be a passing fad. And, you know, it's funny, you know, we haven't seen the blue chip collectors come around yet to NFTs. I heard this statistic recently, which I thought was really interesting. So, you know, we have the, the great Beeple sale for $69 million by Christie's. There were a total of 34 bidders who bid over a million dollars for the work. 30 of the 34 were completely new to Christie's. So NFTs are attracting a completely different audience of people. Those who are creating NFTs are a different audience. You have influencers, you have celebrities. We haven't had a, a, a great deal of artists with an established following taking up the cause of NFTs. Although recently you may have seen that Damien Hurst now is getting involved in NFTs and is actually partnered with a, a new platform called Palm 
which professes to be more energy efficient because that's another issue with NFTs that they they cause harm to the environment. So I, I think one question is going to be, is this something that we're going to be talking about a year from now or, or is it really just, just going to be a, a passing a fad? I don't think it'll be a passing fad. I think it will always be a niche thing, you know, so like it'll be there. The question, it'll probably just go ebb and flow just like any other thing, you know, like paintings become popular and then suddenly sculptures are popular in the same way. NFTs will just be a new medium that will sort of ebb and flow in the arts world, just like any other. In some ways. It, it, yeah. And it, 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 it's a, it's a benefit to underrepresented artists, right? It gives them an audience to get to. It helps them to better monetize their work because they don't need a, a middleman. They can sell it directly online. So you could, you know, make the argument that it, it creates more opportunities for artists. Oh, I have my own opinion on that. I'm okay. The, the this is my uh, from an artist side. So from a creator side of this, I'm not a fan of NFTs because it's basically just like Indiegogo and GoFundMe. Go what are the other Kickstarter and all that kind of jazz, which are basically just cults of personality. So like, if you have lots of friends and you have lots of followings, then people will buy your stuff because they want to be able to say, "Oh, I own a blank person's whatever thing." So for those people who aren't uh, necessarily like big personalities, they're going to have difficulty doing even selling NFTs because like I looked through a number of NFT websites and quite honestly, it was not about like the concept of the art. It was not about the craftsmanship or the technical skills that are being used of the art. It was just about like popularity. And to me, I'm very old school. Maybe I'm very traditional. I always hope merit and quality and like being able to put a long CV on there and saying like, these are my credentials that would make it. So your, your NFT theoretically would be more valuable. Sadly, those kinds of things are not even part of the whole characteristics of it. So from an artist standpoint, not a big fan of the the whole thing in that way, but I'm old that way too. So. <laughs> We're just lawyers, so we can't help you with that. But um, <laughs> we do. I mean, it's it's part of a larger conversation. I think that we're seeing. I mean, just look at Instagram, you know, and and the sales of artwork that are conducted through Instagram. Uh, you know, whether an artist's work performs well can be a function of whether it looks good on Instagram etc. So, you know, we are living in a digital age and a social media age. And I think that certainly has impacted the art market for better or for worse. Absolutely. <laughs> but like, but what something, okay. Something you brought up was the, the comparative nature between like the traditional gallery model to the NFT model. The one thing that, that sort of popped in my head, that's sort of a very big difference is the NFT model ha have a terms and conditions that all have to be agreed to before you can have access to any of that kind of stuff. Are there any legal concerns that we should be concerned about in these terms and conditions that we agree to that we don't have to deal with when we like make a sale at an art gallery? You know, it's just like, here's some cash, there's the art, done. But in order to participate in the NFTs, there's a lot of legal stuff in these terms and conditions that quite honestly, most people don't read. So like, is there anything we should be concerned about there? Well, those terms and conditions are very similar to what you get when you purchase some, well, I don't know if they're similar. The idea of having advanced terms and conditions exists when buying an, an item at auction. The second you register to bid, 
you are consenting to a whole list of terms and conditions which usually exist uh, within the auction catalog. And probably, as I can see from the expression on your face, people aren't aware that they're subject to all these terms and conditions just by merely participating and bidding on an item at auction. So in some ways, it's similar to that. When you put it more in the gallery context, yes. I mean, that's one of the things that Amelia and I see all the time are how these major transactions are done with very little paperwork and very little rules or, or things to, to govern the parties, which, again, of course, make things fun for, for us litigators. But that's one of the most amazing things about, about the art transactions is, is oftentimes, you know, how little paperwork exists with these very significant purchases. I mean, certainly you should read the terms and conditions. I'm not saying that you will, but they can provide guidance on what you're purchasing and your rights in connection therewith. And, you know, when you're creating works, what, you know, you're promising and what you're agreeing to when you sell them there. It's hard. It's tough because it's still new. And yeah. there's, I mean, the other part of it is it's still evolving. Like there are parts of it that like, I have this, you know, I have this jab that I believe that they're basically run by tech companies that are simply just sort of using artists as a method for them to sell a product. The product just happens to be what they call a digital art form. Um, and so like, but unfortunately, like artists are not on those committees or those boards in creating these new companies. So like, I feel like there should be more representation of artists and practitioners on these boards in order to make sure that these NFT uh, websites and portals are actually beneficial to the artists and not just to the companies. Yeah, and we're going to see so many of the, these things pop up and not know, you know, what will work and what won't work. I, you know, began by talking about authenticity issues with respect to NFTs. And I saw something just, just yesterday, some product out there offering, you know, this universal minting solution that actually can span all NFT platforms. So we have to see, are, are these ideas that are popping up going to be the solution or just, you know, create some issues, for, more issues for us down the road? Do you have any sort of last advice that you'd like to give to anybody involved in the arts, depending on your specializations, um, as far as like what they should do to protect themselves, I guess? In terms of approaching a transaction, it's important to do your homework. It's important to understand what you're getting into. If you're interested in a work of art, to understand the history of it, to get consultation in advance. You know, we're, we're litigators and we sort of come into the situation after the problem exists but there's nothing wrong in being proactive and seeking advice, not necessarily from a lawyer, but, but people in the art world, if you have an interest in purchasing something or, or undertaking some kind of a transaction. For creatives, think about having a rights management policy that's tailored to your risk approach. So think about registering your copyrights. It's actually not that expensive to do, and you can do it online. Protect your artwork and think about where you're disseminating it. Okay, wait, that just brought up a thing. So, <laughs> the, I know it, it's it sounds easier than it is. I looked into this years ago before the internet. So, like, I actually wrote to the copyright office and they wrote me a letter back and tried to give me all the kind of stuff. But anyways, but the my concern about the the copyright slash intellectual property thing is uh, national versus international. Because when I was in the United States, I was like, okay, sure, internet, you know, U.S. law is all I was concerned about. But these days, of course, everything is international with websites and uh, social media and all this kind of stuff. So, 
if I were to file in, let's say, in the United States for copyright protection, and then somebody publishes a book with my images in Germany, what can I do? So fortunately, I mean, every country has their own copyright law, but they all cooperate or most of them cooperate with each other through a treaty called the Berne Convention. So we give protection to foreign works and foreign countries give protection to American works. And so that's how it works out. Just to be clear, that was Bern, like B-U-R-N, correct? B-E-R-N-E, Bern. <laughs> Great. Okay, good. Just because I'm going to have to research it. <laughs> yeah. Because, well, because like intellectual property, like I was in the United Arab Emirates and I found exponentially more cases of using imagery, context. I mean, just like uh, text works, uh, musical works, all this kind of stuff, totally inappropriately and against copyright laws in most countries. But of course, they were the United Arab Emirates. They can get rid of, get away with a lot of things that a lot of other countries couldn't get away with. So I find that the, I'm more concerned about like international concerns about copyright and all this, because like basically, like, so for, I guess the question would be people who are listening to this, uh, uh, they can be all over the world. So should they file in their own country their copyright or should they be filing it in some country that has a good part, is part of that treaty or like how, what's the smart way to do that? So the U.S. is a little bit different in that we have a registration system, whereas other countries don't. And so, and you don't always have to have a registration to have protection. It's just additional protection. But I think you do, your concern about enforcement in other countries is, is shared by many. I mean, it can be hard to police infringement in a number of different countries just because you know, they may not ha respect intellectual property laws in the way that, you know, our country does. So it's not an easy problem to solve. Well, I actually had a photograph of mine published in a book in, I believe it was the Netherlands. And like, I had no idea what the laws were there or anything like that. So I was very concerned about them well, just lying, you know, saying like, oh, we're making only like 500 copies of the book. Well, maybe they made 5,000. How the fuck am I going to know? <laughs> That's right. Well, that's a challenge, you know, in all countries because you don't, people don't always voluntarily cooperate, right? I mean, sometimes the most you can get is just someone stopping, but, you know, not getting recompense for what they did before or even any idea of what they did before because they don't want to cooperate with you. And again, it can be very expensive to bring these cases to court. And so a lot of them are not brought. Or if they're brought, they're stopped just because they're cost prohibitive. All right. Any last things you want to say to anybody? This was fun. Thank you, yeah. Matt. This has been fun. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Amelia. This was great. <laughs> Thank you both. I hope you are enjoying and learning from these conversations as much as I am. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated as well. We'll even take a critical comment too. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles. And for more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website at wisefoolpod.com.
The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners, Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.